a little while ago. Can you guys hear me all right in the back? Really? Wow, that's, that's great. When you're outside, you don't hear the echo, so it sounds like you're, yeah, it sounds like you're barely talking, so you, you almost want to shout, but I want to do that, you know. Anyway, guys, I did a series, I don't know if I did two on it already, or this is the third or what, but it's basically called, Why in the World Are We Still Here? Or Why Are We Still Here? You know, and we understand uh, when you don't know the beginning and why you were even created or why you exist, it'd be walking around like having amnesia, You're not even knowing why you exist, not knowing your purpose in life, not knowing where you're going. And that's the way it is for most people. So it's really, really sad. And it's so, such a blessing to know who we are, how we've been made in the image of God, how we've been made to know him, the state of mankind, that we're fallen, humanity's fallen, that we have redemption uh, through the blood of Christ, through the gospel, that we're being transformed in the image of Christ and being made like him, and that we have a future and a hope in Christ. And what a joy it is to know the Lord, amen, and to be saved. Now, it's interesting because when I was talking about why we are still here, because it's, okay, now we get saved. Okay, well, God, why don't you just take us to heaven? I mean, why are you leaving us here? This crazy, wicked world, you know. We're children. We've come to you. We've been forgiven. How come we're still here? And it's for some very, very important reasons. And when we understand the reasons why we, we're still here, and I don't want to limit to the few I give, but the few I give, uh, if you want to add to it, you can add nuances to the basic reasons I give, I'm sure. Uh, but the reasons we're still here, one reason is to reach the lost, amen? We've been given the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, and then Jesus said, then the end will come, amen? So we have a call to spiritual duty, to be ambassadors for Christ, amen? The Bible says that we're ambassadors for Christ to reach the lost. So that's one reason we're still here, amen? All of us should be involved in one way or another in reaching the lost and sharing the good news with the lost, amen? And it seems like there's always some mission trip going on in our fellowship, you know? If there's not somebody on one, there's something coming up, you know? And uh, just a, f a few of the young guys just returned today, um, including my son. Um, we've had a couple in a row just to Mexico. We're planning more and more and the neat thing I was telling somebody recently, the really neat thing watching in our fellowship is just seeing how organically the Lord is sending people out and people are just taking upon themselves to go and be witnesses. And we always have street witnessing going on. And that's an exciting thing. So we want to fulfill our duty in that way. The second reason, one of the second reasons, necessarily, and not, not prioritizing them as far as the first and foremost reason we're here, this is just a little list, is to have our faith tested. To have our faith tested. And uh, we read that throughout Scripture. How many know about having your faith tested? Amen. And the Bible talks a lot about in the Old and the New Testament how our faith is being tested. Read First Peter chapter 1. And it says it's more precious to the Lord that our faith is tested uh, than, the, you know, the things of this world. Or, you know, it's incredibly precious to the Lord than, than physical things, material things. The blood of Christ is more important. It goes on to say that we've been redeemed by. And our faith is being tested. And there's many passages that deal with that. And so we're being tested and keep the faith. Number three, number three is to become more like Christ. Amen. This is where the tools are whipped out. This is where we become more and more like Christ. Uh, in, the heaven, in the heavenly kingdom, if you were to die today, we know of no process. The Bible doesn't talk about purgatory or anything like that. So we have one opportunity to become more and more like Christ. Now, of course, when he returns, will be like him, but there's aspects that we become like him in this world that count for eternity, okay? And we know the scriptures say, and everybody quotes this verse, and it's a beautiful verse, 
But a lot of people don't understand the context in which this verse applies to our lives. But we love Romans 8.28. It probably comes in second or third after John 3.16, right? Romans 8.28, for God works all things together for the good, for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Amen. But the very next verse, there's a conjunction, the word for again, connecting it to verse 28 as to what good is he working us toward. It's for, it says, for whom he foreknew. Okay, he foreknew. He foreknows who will respond, who will not respond. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Amen. So if somebody says, hey, what's the will of God in your life to become more like Christ? I'm being conformed to the image of Christ. Amen. And he uses the sandpaper, the hammers, the, the things in this world to make us more like Christ. Amen. And that's why we're not supposed to freak out when we go through trials. We're not supposed to get bitter at God or get upset. We're supposed to say, hey, you know what? I need to submit to the Lord through my trial. Do what's right through my trial and let him allow me to become more like Christ. You don't become more Christ-like at parties or on, you know, merry-go-rounds and roller coasters unless they're really, really scary roller coasters maybe, you know, and you're really causing you to pray, right? As you do through your trials, Amen. It's your trials where you get on your knees, where you cry out to God, where you come to know him better. Amen. And a fourth reason uh, is simply to glorify God, testify to God's nature and his goodness and who he is. Amen. And all three of the first reasons I gave would fall under that, of course, because that would be more general. But this message is, you know, why in the world are we still here? I want to do one more part on this. And who knows, maybe there'll be another part down the line because I love this subject. Because when we know our purpose, when we know who we are, when we know why we've been saved, we know why God has left us here, we know our identity in Christ, then we know how to live our lives. So this is a very practical message, a very devotional type message that can really, you know, get the cookies off the, out of the, you know, shelf, onto the table where you can get your heart and mind around it. Like, this is what my life should look like. Amen. That's why we come, so we can know how to live and grow and be as the Lord has called us to be. So understand this, you guys. The Bible talks about two types of righteousness. The Bible talks about positional righteousness, and it talks about practical righteousness. And it's important to know the difference. If somebody came to you and they said, what is positional righteousness and what is practical righteousness and what's the difference between the two? Could you explain it to them? I hope by the end of this message, and we're just going to spend a few minutes on it, but I'm going to ferret it out because guess what? We basically talked about positional righteousness in my entire message uh, last Sunday. It was all about positional righteousness. Amen? So positional righteousness is how we have been declared righteous in our standing before God. By the grace of God, we've been declared righteous. Through faith in him, we have been forgiven. Amen? We've been forgiven all of our sins. Anything that you've ever done in the past is forgiven. And you stand before God and you're declared right before God, righteous before him. Not based on the things that you've done or works of righteousness that you have engaged in. Amen? You're declared righteous solely on the basis of what? God's grace through faith. Amen? Through Christ's sacrificial death for your sins. Amen? You have declared righteous. So, is anybody perfect here? Besides the Lord, he's here. Is anybody absolutely perfect? But you know what? Do you know when you're standing before God through faith, you're, you're declared 100% righteous? Not, not talking about your, your behavior, talking about you're standing before God. 
you could not enter into the presence of God unless you've been declared righteous. Because you are forgiven of your sins, when you die for your sins, you'll stand before God and you'll be admitted into heaven because of what Christ did for you on the cross. Amen. So there's nothing that God holds against you. I don't care how bad you've sinned in the past, what you've done in the past. If you've repented and asked for God for forgiveness and you've turned to him and embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've been declared righteous and you're forgiven. And the Bible says in John chapter 5, verse 24, he that believes in him, it's in the present tense, believes and continues to believe, has passed from death to life right? And will not come into condemnation. So if you're trusting Jesus for your salvation, you've passed from death to life. Even now you have eternal life and you will not come into condemnation if you're trusting Christ. Isn't that good news? That's the good news. So that's positional righteousness. Remember last Sunday I took a little child from the audience and stood him next to me and said, you know, you know, just for the sake of an illustration, if he's a picture of Christ and I'm just old Joe, man, sinner, needing God's grace and I deserve God's wrath, right? But he's perfect, the son of God. He took my place and we switched spots. Remember that? And the wrath that I deserve fell upon Christ. Amen? And what happens to us? He partakes of our sin so we can partake of his what? His righteousness, amen? Is Christ's righteousness Close to perfect or full-blown perfect? It's full-blown, absolute, perfect. Amen? In fact, here's some scriptures that deal with us being the righteousness of God or declared righteous or our position of righteousness because uh, we've been declared righteous in the court of heaven through faith in Christ and his sacrifice and his resurrection. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So for our sake, he did it for our sake. He made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? Remember this? So in him we might become what? Amen. The righteousness of God. Amen. He partake of our sins so we could partake of his what? Of the righteousness of God. Hey, sweetheart, I hate to ask you this, but it's way loud back there if we can keep the kids down. Thank you so much. Thank the Lord for help me. It's getting really louder and louder as I speak. Anyway, that's one of those verses. Listen to Romans 4, 4 and 5. It says, Now to the one who works, one who works, keeps the law, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Right? But it says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his faith is counted as righteousness. Amen? So you come to him by faith and you're declared righteous. Amen? I love that. Now listen to Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Listen, folks. Says Paul says, Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Catch that? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Did you catch that? That's basic Christianity. So when we talk about two types of righteousness, what's the first type of righteousness that we're talking about? 
positional righteousness. Amen? If you have put your faith in Christ, you're trusting Jesus today, you have positional righteousness, you've been declared righteous, and you have admittance into God's kingdom should you die today through faith in the sacrifice of the Mashiach, the Messiah. Amen? The Lord Jesus Christ. And now, it's important that we get this, guys, because God calls us first and foremost to accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, to be declared righteous, to be forgiven of our sins. To have positional righteousness means simply to have your sins forgiven and be righteous before God. But God also calls us to practical righteousness. Now, we're saved through Christ's righteousness and through faith in what he's done for us. Amen? But now we're called to live out our positional righteousness and it should manifest in our lives as practical righteousness. How we live our lives should match our position, amen? We should live according to our identity. We are children of God through faith, amen? We are joint heirs of the kingdom, amen? We are a royal priesthood, amen? We are seated in heavenly places. All these beautiful, beautiful truths that belong to us, they should show up in our lives by the way we live our lives. That's why Ephesians, and I wish I had more time to talk about the book of Ephesians, but I want to share many, many scriptures along the lines of living out your position, living out your positional righteousness in your lives. And, but Ephesians, for the first three chapters, there's not one single command there. You'll search in vain for one, don't do this or do that, in Ephesians, the first three chapters. Because it's all about how we've been saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves the gift of God, not of works as anyone should boast, Amen how we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, how we're seated in heavenly places, amen? How that we've, we are in the beloved through faith in Christ, right? That God chose us in him before the foundation of the world according to his purpose, the purpose of his will, which what was the purpose of his will? That whoever would believe would be sealed, amen? And it doesn't, so this is all very important because he emphasizes who we are, that Jews and Gentiles have been brought together through Christ into one body, the mystery, all these beautiful things, right? But then in the very first couple verses of chapter 4, and throughout the rest of chapter 4, 5, and 6, there's all kinds of commands on how to live out your position and what your walk should look like. And that if you're positionally declared righteous, you ought to be walking a righteous life. Amen. That's consistent with your positional righteousness. Amen. So we read in Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore? Therefore, meaning based on what I've just written to you for the last three chapters, even though they weren't written in chapter form in the original, but what I've just written to you, Paul says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, he's writing from prison for preaching the gospel, I implore you to walk, listen, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In other words, walk in a manner that's worthy of the first three chapters that he wrote. Your walk should look like his talk his writing, who we are in Christ with all humility because guess what? If you've been saved by grace, you're not boasting about all that you've done for the Lord to earn your salvation because you haven't earned salvation. And gentleness with patience. He was patient with us. He was gentle with us, showing tolerance for one another in love. The Lord showed tolerance toward us, amen? Christians ought to be the most gentle, tolerant people in the world because we're sinners that have been saved by grace and we ought to want that same grace to envelope everybody else amen so we need to walk our position to walk our position there's a really amazing 
uh, football player named Minka Fitzpatrick. And Minka Fitzpatrick was one of the best college uh, defensive players ever. In fact, he got the nickname Saban's son. Not Satan's son, but Saban's son. And Nick Saban is considered by many to be the best or one of the best college football uh, coaches ever because he's won a lot of championships recently. And Minka Fitzpatrick was the only guy that was ever designated as Nick Saban's or Saban's son because he loved him so much, talked about him so much, and was so fond of him as a player. Well, guess what? He was drafted by the Miami Dolphins, and they fell, he fell them way, he fell deeper in the draft than he was supposed to. And they thought, wow, look at this guy. We can't believe we got this safety. We need a safety so bad. But guess what? When it came time to do training camp and have preseason games and play, they didn't really need him to cover guys. Safeties can be really good in covering the, the wide receivers, right? But your cornerbacks are your best cover guys. They're best at covering. They're usually smaller guys that are quick, and they're best at covering the receivers. But safeties do coverage, but they also do run support. Cornerbacks do run support too, but they usually cover the receivers almost, sometimes some of them almost exclusively. But they both do both. But safeties, especially what's called the strong safety, he'll step up in the box and he'll give run support. He's a safety, meaning keeping it safe in case a a guy gets loose or something, but he wants to stop the run. Well, guess what? They put Minka Fitzpatrick at his, his position. We're talking about positional righteousness, right? It's a little illustration. At his position... They wanted him to play a strong safety, but they wanted him specifically for run support, and they called him to play to stop the run. And they're going to give him his opportunities to cover guys because he likes to do that. But they had really good coverage corners. But guess what? He was kind of bummed out, started complaining that he didn't like tackling so much and, or didn't want to really play that position. His mom started complaining publicly, too, that he was out of position. And then during practice, when he was in the linebacker-type spot or strong safety playing up near the line, he would run across the field and start covering defensive backs without the coach's permission out of position say I want to cover guys and he just this is what I can do and guess what Flores the coach of the Dolphins traded him to the Steelers because what 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 are you gonna happen when a guy's playing out of position right and on the field if he's like hey you know what I'm gonna just cover guys instead of stop the run well then you're gonna have even a worse running game than those Dolphins had at that time he didn't play his position, okay? Didn't want to play his position. And it would cause the team to suffer. It's a team sport. Guess what? We, have all, we all have a position as Christians. We have positional righteousness, amen? And we ought to be living righteous lives that reflect the calling, the high calling that we have in Christ, amen? We ought not be getting out of position and living like the world system, amen? We ought not be saying, hey, I don't care what the coach says. I want to do my own thing. You know, and I want to I want to do things over here because you do things contrary to his will. You're out of his will. When you're out of God's will, that's sin and it's destructive. That's what happens with cancer. Cancer are cells that aren't (laughs) obedient, healthy team players. They go and do their rogue cells that go and do their own things and multiply. And we want to make sure we're serving Christ and we're not out of position, so to speak. Now, it's interesting because when we look at the scriptures and we look at how we have this positional righteousness and we're called to live this practical righteousness, we have to be real careful because there's millions of Christians today who celebrate every Sunday their positional righteousness. They hear John 3.16. They hear we're saved by grace through faith. If they have any verses memorized, it's John 3.16 and maybe Ephesians 2.8.9. 
but they're not followers of Christ. They're not disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not walking as Christians. And the position that they claim, there's no evidence of that in their lives. It's incongruent, their behavior, with their profession. The walk doesn't mention or match up with the talk. And this is very important, you see, because in the Scripture, God's people often end up doing their own thing. And there's high cost for that. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 33, Ezekiel is called to be a watchman, to warn the people that they need to walk with the Lord. And in verse 1, and you can turn there if you want to Ezekiel 33 if you've got your Bible out or you've got a cell phone and your Bible apps there, your fingertips, Ezekiel 33, verse 1 and following. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of the people and say to them, if I bring a sword upon the land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and a sword comes and takes him away his blood will be on his own head. So if the watchman warns but the guy doesn't get ready his blood's on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet. He did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. And it's a picture of saying God's judgment is coming. You need to turn from your sin. And, and Ezekiel is one of the watchmen who's to warn people. Verse 6, though. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity. Talking about in his sin... But his blood I require from the watchman's hand. In other words, if Ezekiel didn't blow the trumpet and say, hey, you guys need to repent and get right, even though God said to warn them, if they continue in their sin, well, they're in trouble. But guess what? Ezekiel's in trouble too. Their blood is on his head. Paul said, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, he brought this teaching into the New Testament and applied it to himself. He says, he did not fail to preach the whole counsel of God Paul preached the goodness of God and the severity of God. Amen? He preached heaven and hell. Amen? Life and death. And Paul said, Therefore, I am clean from the blood of all men. In other words, he knew when he stood before God, the Lord wouldn't say, Paul, you didn't preach the whole counsel of God. He tried to make, you know, uh, being a disciple, just fold your hands, don't need to follow Jesus, just say some words or what have you. You preached, no, Paul preached the whole counsel of God. And in the New Testament, we have a similar concern that people would be hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. Take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 22. And here we read, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word. Are you guys doers of the word? Be doers of the word, prove yourself to be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So in other words, don't just come to church and hear a message and hear the word, and, but not practice it, not apply it to your life, not do it, you know, failing to do it. For instance, last week we had a whole message on how we need to be clothed through faith in the righteousness of Christ, positional righteousness, Amen. But if you fail to come to him in faith and you haven't been cleansed of your sins 
and you just heard the word and say, wow, that makes a lot of sense. I like that message because, man, I don't have to be found in my sins and like, you know, it talks about our own righteousness like filthy rags, right? But we can have the righteousness of Christ, the garments of salvation. I can be clothed in them through faith. But you just say, nah, I'm not going to place faith in Christ. Well, then you'd be a hearer, but you'd leave that message doomed because you're not forgiven. But now, but that's talking about faith. That's not even talking about a work. Now we're talking about when we're saved, we ought to be living out our salvation. The Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's New Testament, Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to do and will his good purpose. Amen? But it's not say work for your salvation. We're saved by grace through faith, but we work it out of our lives. We apply it to our lives. We allow the salvation of the Lord to be seen in our lives. But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, that's the law of Christ, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, notice it says hearer three times, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If you are a hearer, but you're not doing God's word, you're not walking according to God's word, then you're deluding yourself. But if you are a doer of the word, an effectual doer, putting his word into practice in your lives, then the scriptures say that you are blessed in what you do. Amen. How many of you want to be deluded? I don't see any hands, okay? How many want to be blessed? Amen? Well, we need to be effectual doers of the word. By the way, the word hearer there, I just think it's interesting. I remember teaching verse by verse the book of James, and it was fascinating because the Greek word that's translated hearer is the same Greek word three times. And it's akraates, okay? Akraates. And it's a very interesting word because it literally means an auditor. It was used of auditors in the first century. Those who would go and listen to lectures, listen to teachers, and they'd hear, but they didn't subject themselves to the exams. They didn't take the exams, the test. They just came to audit classes and learned some things, and they'd leave, but it wouldn't affect their lives. And we have auditors today, right? You can audit classes, right, in university, college, and you can go and learn and some stuff, but don't get a grade or don't take tests or what have you. And he used the word that was known to speak of auditors. And James is using some pretty interesting language, letting them know, hey, don't just be an auditor. Don't be someone that learns. You need to be a real disciple. Jesus said that of a true disciple, that he will look like his master after he's applied his teaching, the teaching of the master to his life. We should look more and more like Christ. Amen? The Bible says, as he is, so are we in this world and that we're to become like him. No one's perfectly like him, but we should look a lot more like Christ in our lives and the way we are, the way we talk, the way we treat people than before we became Christians. Amen? If there's no difference in the way you treat people and how you think of people and how you love people than before you came to Christ, then you have to say, have I really come to Jesus? Am I really following his teachings? Because certainly prior to becoming a Christian and following Christ, you weren't following his commands to love one another as he's loved us. Amen? So it's important that we get this and we understand how serious this is. You don't want to be a mere auditor. Speaking of football analogies, I don't use a lot of football analogies, but think of this. 
could you imagine 11 people on your team? Can you imagine a pro team playing? They're going to have football season. Starts in a few weeks. And can you imagine all of a sudden you look at the football team and the, the offense of some team go out the Rams since we're in, near L.A. And all of a sudden three of the guys are like sit down at the 50-yard line. And their team is like on the 25-yard on the line, right? And they're on the 50-yard line just sitting there watching the game being played. They're like, wow, they blew that one. How come no one picked up that block? Wait a minute, you're one of the linemen. You're supposed to be blocking, dude. It, it would be ridiculous. Be like, wait a minute, get in the game. And guess what? That's how a lot of professing Christians are. They're on the sidelines as spectators watching others do the work. Do you get it? There's something messed up about that. We aren't to be the spectators. Amen? We're all to be the disciples. We're all to be walking and going forward. Amen? We're all to be in the game, so to speak. Amen? We're all to be doing the Lord's will. Amen? We've all, got, we've all been called to do things for Jesus. Amen? Now, don't feel like, man, but I do things, but right now I'm sitting down. This is a terrible position I'm in right now because I'm sitting down. Of course I'm, well, no, this is part of it. We're supposed to be hearers, amen, but not just hearers, amen. We're supposed to be doers of the word, and that's important, and we need to live out our faith. Let me give you different aspects of emphasis that I want to encourage you in to live out your faith now that you've come to know Christ. Since we are the righteousness of God, since we've been declared righteous, we ought to be living what? Righteous lives, amen? We ought to be living righteous lives. So, listen to this. Since we are born of God, are you born again? Jesus said you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. First John 5, 1 says that he that believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, amen? But if you're born of God, you become a child of God, you're in his family. If you're born of God, you become a new creation. The Bible says if anyone be in Christ is a new creation, behold, old things have passed away, all things have become new, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Since you're born of God, you are not to practice sin. Sin is rebellion against God. You're not to practice sin. 1 John 3, 9 and 10 says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. What does it mean I can't sin if his seed abides me and I'm born of God? In the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. Perfect tense means born of God and continues to be born of God. He's that's born of God and continues to be born of God. The seed abides in him. Amen? And that prevents you from practicing sin. What's the seed that abides in us? John says in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, right before this, let that which you have heard from the beginning, that's the seed of the word that's planted in us, abide in you. If that which you heard from the beginning remains in you, you also will continue in the Father and the Son and, re and, and receive the promise eternal life. I'm writing these things concerning those who are trying to seduce you. So we're supposed to allow God's word, as the parable of the sower states, right, to receive the word, but then to hold on to the word, amen? If you're holding on to God's word, right, you're born of God and you continue to be born of God because you're trusting Jesus, guess what, folks? If the seed of God's word is abiding in you, then you aren't going to be rebelling against the Lord. Do you get it? How could I be abiding in God's word? Amen. Meditating on his word. His word living in me and being in rebellion in him at the same time. It's an impossibility. Do you understand? A lot of people trip up over this text. Oh, it sounds like if you're born of God, you'll never commit one sin. That's not what he's saying. First John is real clear. First John 1, 9. 
If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. First John 1 John 1.8. If whoever says he's without sin is a liar, the truth is not in him. Amen. First John 2 2. I write these things that you don't sin. If you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. Then John says in John chapter 5, verse 16, there's a sin unto life and a, that a brother can commit and a sin unto death that he commit they're not supposed to pray for. So the scriptures do talk about how a genuine believer will still fall short of God's glory because on your perfect day, on the best day you ever have on earth, you still will not look exactly like Jesus because he is so perfect. And he said, love one another as I've loved you. And which of us here is loved perfectly throughout a day exactly as he's loved? I would not dare raise my hand, amen? But guess what? At the same time, I can say of every true, genuine believer that continues to follow Jesus and is born of God and continues to have the word of God abide in him, that he's not going to be practicing rebellion against Jesus, amen, and be able to claim that the word of God abides in him. So if you're born of God, we are not to practice sin. No one who is born of God practices sin, 1 John 3, 9, because a seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother. So, it's real clear. Well, you really can't know who true Christians are. Really? First John chapter 3, it says the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Those who practice sin are of the devil. Those who pra practice righteousness are of God. Now, sometimes it might be kind of gray, a person you don't really know their walk and so forth, but you can see, and Paul could even write of those whose name, and he could give us a couple names where he, he says their names are written in heaven. Amen. Since we are children of God, living out our position of righteousness, we're to be above reproach in this crooked and perverse world. Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. What's he saying there? As children of God, you ought to be living as children of God. Your walk should match your talk, amen? Your lifestyle and your practical righteousness shall match your position, your positional righteousness. Since Jesus brought, us to the, gospel, uh, brought the gospel of peace to us, right? Since we have positional righteousness through the gospel of peace, he now sends us out to share the gospel of peace with others. John 20, 21, again, Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Amen? Since we are chosen by God and we're chosen by God to bear fruit, that's our position. We're chosen by God as fruit bearers. We ought to go out and bear fruit. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, says Jesus, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go out and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Since we be, are saved by grace, we're, we ought to allow ourselves to be tools used by God's grace to affect the lives of others. That's those famous verses, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you save through faith, that not of yourselves the gift of God, not of works as anyone should boast. Then it goes on to say the very next verse, people usually quote 8 and 9, but I love verse 10, for we are his workmanship, amen, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Did you know God prepared works for you to do beforehand? For you specifically. He prepared works for you to do. You are his workmanship. Remember the Greek word there, poema. Amen? It's a beautiful Greek word. This word poem comes from that. 
a lot of exegetes will say, yeah, that's, we're God's poem. Well, it's not limited. You're more than God's poem, okay? And that's not what he's really saying. He's saying you're much more than God's poem. You're his workmanship, man, from the beginning of creation, okay? And yeah, you're, of course, you know, God's poetry in motion as the Holy Spirit works in your life, but you're his workmanship. He's taking from you and me that which was tohu wabohu in the Hebrew, right? Formless and void, where darkness is over face deep. He spoke and said, let there be light. And he brought forth creation. That's the ex- example. That's the imagery Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 4 when he said he called light to shine out of darkness, right? To transform our hearts and light of Christ through the gospel shine in our hearts. Amen. Amen. To make us new creations. So if we're new creations, we ought to walk as new creations. If we're saved by grace through faith, amen, we ought to show up that we're God's workmanship, that he's done a work of grace in our lives. If he's done a radical work of grace in your life, it should show up. You cannot stick a fork into 220 volts without it affecting your life. Amen? Well, God is far more powerful than electricity, and you cannot claim to know God and be in touch with him and be in fellowship with him without it radically affecting your life on some level. Since we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, our position, and have been bought with a price, we're to glorify God in our bodies. Amen? Amen? Amen. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 19-20. He says, Or do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit is in you, which you have from God, and you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Then what does it say? Therefore. Therefore, what do you mean therefore? Since you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Since the Holy Spirit lives in you. Right? Since you have the Holy Spirit from God. Since you're not your own. Since you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Otherwise, you're not living consistent with who you are as a Christian. And he warns some, he gets some pretty heavy warnings right before that. He talks about how can you as a member of Christ, he's talking to genuine believers, make Christ one with a prostitute and be joined together with a prostitute. Right? In fact, go to that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because it's totally incongruent with your position. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Do you not know that you, your bodies are members of Christ? So if you're a genuine believer, he's not talking to non-believers here or just professing believers. He's talking to those who belong to Jesus, who are members of Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. Right? So what does that say with men who claim to be Christians? and then visit prostitutes or get involved in adultery and fornication or pornography. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is what? One spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that you are bought, you are the body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? For you have been what? Bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus, guys. Therefore glorify God in your body. Back up to chapter 6, verse 8. He gets into it even there, for e- earlier. Because in chapter 5, he's dealing with a member in the church who is having sex with his mother, with his father's wife. And he says the Gentiles aren't even doing this, and this guy's going to their church. 
And he says, get the wicked man out of the, out of the church. Hand him over to Satan, he says, for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of salvation. That would be if he repented. And I believe he did, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, not to be so hard on this guy, forgive him, com uh, comfort him, and confirm your love toward him. Because it was a remedial disciplinary action. But then he warns the church of Corinth here because he says you guys should be mourning over this because mourning is something you do with a death. He goes, but you're gloating. As, oh, we're free in Christ to do whatever. Paul's like, oh, I'm wrong. That's not the grace message. Paul says, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? May it never be. Paul says he's false and he'd be reported to teach that very doctrine and it was not his doctrine. But if you look at chapter six, verse nine, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And who's he warning? Verse 8. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your what? Your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Guess what? That's a reality. He wants people not to be deceived. That's why he goes on to say, if you take your body as a member of Christ and become one with a prostitute, that's incongruent with what you've been called to. You're not walking as you ought to walk at that point. You're to glorify God in your body because you've been bought with a price. Amen? And we, you need to remember our identity and remember who we are in Christ. Look at the very next verse. I love this verse. Such were some of you. Those very people that aren't inheriting the kingdom of God, that's what you were doing too. Such were some of you. But you were washed, thank the Lord Jesus, cleansed from our sins by the precious blood of Jesus. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, set apart from evil. But you were and set apart to God. But you were justified, declared righteous, the positional righteousness of God, remember? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So we need to walk consistently with who we are. Since you are forgiven for Christ's sake, we ought to forgive others. Amen? Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. See, I've got the position. I've been declared righteous. I've been forgiven. Now guess what? As I'm conformed to the image of Christ, now I'm to forgive others and follow Christ's example. Amen? And not just follow his example, but be enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit, he that works in me to will and do his goodwill. Amen? Relying on the power of his Holy Spirit to live out my positional righteousness. You see, your positional righteousness is by grace, amen? But also your practical righteousness is by enabling grace. Your positional, rice, your positional righteousness comes by God's pure, free grace, whereby he just declares you righteous through faith in his son. But your practical righteousness is also by grace, and that's by what we call his enabling grace, amen? His empowerment to help us live righteous lives, amen? lives we couldn't live without his power but lives we can live because christ is now in us the hope of glory amen so if you're having a problem forgiving somebody say god give me grace you've had grace on me you've told me to pray forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us so if i'm not going to forgive i'm not going to be forgiven i'm going to cut myself off from your grace see to it that no root of bitterness springs up you the bible says whereby you fail the grace of god these are real issues that are very important in the body of Christ. Since we are dead to sin and alive to God, we are not to allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies. 
but we're to offer up the members, our hands, our tongues, our feet, you know, as members and instruments of righteousness. Listen to this. Since you are dead to sin, when you came to Christ, you repented, you turned from sin, you took up your cross, you said, no, it's no longer about living for myself. I'm going to put my trust in what Jesus did, amen. You died to your old self, the wicked ways of the world, and now you live to God and you're alive to God. So you ought to live that way. Listen to Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Let's turn there. If you can, if you've got a phone, you can go there. If you've got a Bible, and you can still see out there. Uh, verse 11, Romans 6, 11. says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. Amen? So being under grace doesn't mean you live a wicked life. Oh, I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. Well, if you're under grace, live like it. Amen? Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. It teaches us, that grace of God teaches us to live godly lives, amen? To not deny ungodliness and live soberly and righteously in this world as we look for the blessed hope and the great, uh, and the appearing, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Since Jesus Christ is coming back for a spotless bride, your position, the bride of Christ, spotless, without blemish, because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, Ephesians 5, 27, we are to purify ourselves as he is pure, we're to live out our positional righteousness and become more pure. In fact, listen to 1 John chapter 3. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself even as he is pure. What does a bride do as she gets ready for her wedding? Is she concerned how her wedding dress looks? She concerned how she looks? Yeah. Guess what? We're looking for the bridegroom to come. And we'll hear the bridegroom cometh, the trump of God. Amen. And as we look forward to being with the Lord Jesus Christ forever, we purify ourselves as he is pure. Since we have been partakers of his great love, we are to share that love with others. John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Since we have received, freely received his grace, we are to freely give. Freely have received, freely give, Jesus says. Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. Since we have been made partakers of a royal priesthood, and are serving the king of kings, we are to proclaim praises to his glory. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellency of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Since we've been chosen out of this world, amen, and we're not of this world system, this fallen world that rejects God anymore, we're to abstain from the sins that destroy the soul. 1 John 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Since we have been reconciled to God, we're to seek others' reconciliation to God as we share the gospel with them. 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We all have ministries, amen? We all have the ministry of reconciliation. Since each of us has received gifts from the Lord, 
Each and every one of us has received at least one spiritual gift from him. We're to use those gifts to God's glory and not just sit here with this position of being gifted by the Lord, saying, Mom, did I just bump on a log? No, man. So it's used by the Lord. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, beginning at verse 10, as each one, as each one, that's all of you who are trusting Jesus, has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength, by the strength, by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Since Jesus left us an example of servicehood and became the ultimate servant, the servant king, we ought to serve one another as we serve him. Jesus said, whoever wishes to be first among you, Matthew chapter 20, verses 27 and 28, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Just as Jesus suffered on the cross for our sins, he gave us an example, saying the servant is not greater than the master, that we also ought to be prepared and armed to suffer ourselves as we are called to in certain contexts, right? For Jesus uh, says, or in 1 Peter 2, verse 20 and following, it says of the Lord Jesus, and first to us, then it goes to Jesus as our example. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure with patience? I mean, what credit? You're sinning. If you're during that, it's not a big deal. I mean, it's actually kind of sad. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Amen? Part of living out who we are is being Christ-like. All those who live godly in this world will suffer persecution, Paul says. That's in the same passage after he says, know this, that latter days or last days, terrible times will come. King James, perilous times will come. NIV, I think, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of their own selves covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, right? Having a form of godliness, denying the power thereof, you know, hating what is good, all kinds of things, right? But then jump down to verse 12, he says, you know, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, and evil men will wax from bad to worse, which is what we're seeing in the world, Right? But if you live for Christ and you're light in this world, you're going to suffer some persecution. But guess what? That is our lot as we live out as the salt of the earth and the light of the world and we emulate Christ. You're going to stick out like a sore thumb. And it's going to be convicting to some people, right? Christ got nailed to the cross because of it. But praise God. Friday is there, but Sunday was coming. Amen. Resurrection. We'll have times of hardship here, but the scriptures say that the sufferings that we currently go through are not to be compared to the glory that we revealed. In fact, one passage says that they actually work an eternal weight of glory for us, far beyond all comparison. Amen? Amen. I'll tell you what, man. The Bible says we're all going to stand before the Lord. If you are trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now, and your faith is in Him, you have been declared righteous. You're forgiven of your sins and you're positionally righteous before God. That's beautiful, amen? But if you're positionally righteous before the Lord, it should show up in your life in practical righteousness, amen? 
The Bible says that we're going to stand before God to give an account for our lives. Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We'll all go before what's in the Greek called the bema seat, you know, where, which was a high platform where the judge would judge we're gonna, or, the, or the athletes would be rewarded. We're going to stand before the Lord at the bema seat judgment. If you're trusting Jesus, that will not be the great white throne judgment where you'll be sentenced to the lake of fire. That'll be the judgment where you'll receive rewards or lost reward. Every true believer will receive some rewards, I believe. But I encourage you to make sure you take this seriously because the Bible says if you're truly righteous and you're truly walking in the faith, that there'll be fruit, amen? The Bible says faith without works is what? Is dead. John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, amen? And I love this, Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, work, it, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Isn't that awesome? So we don't work to be saved. We're already saved by grace through Christ's death and his resurrection, amen? But we're supposed to work to serve our Lord. And I used to always, I used to, I mean, for the longest time, it was my problem. My problem. It was a problem I had. When I look at rewards, I say, Lord, I don't need any rewards. I'm so happy to get in. I'm so happy to be saved. You know, I can't just, just get past the threshold by your grace, what Jesus did. That's enough. I'll be a, a door sweeper at your threshold. I'm, whatever you want from me, I'm happy. And I see those reward passages, and then I got convicted partway through my Christian walk as a teacher. I still teach on them, but I thought, you know what? That's an important part of God's word. And if it's not important to me as it is the Lord enough to put it there, I'm missing something. And I thought, you know what? God really wants us to be excited about how he's going to reward us in his kingdom. Amen? And Joe, you better not damper the beauty and importance and the brightness and the joy of that. Amen? So I want to encourage you. That's a beautiful thing. And he's helped me appreciate that more in my Christian walk. Because I'm just so enamored by his grace, you know? And, uh, but you know what? I have two major goals in my life. It's really one major goal. It's to hear these words, but not just for myself, but for everybody I can influence to hear these words too. If I could help them hear these words. Well done, Jesus will say, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Amen? That should be your goal. But that shouldn't be just your goal for yourself. That should be your goal for your family members, amen? Your neighbors, your workmates, you know? I'm not, if you're watching live stream, it's not trying to wake anybody up, you know? That dog. Zoe, no bark. <laughs> anyway, uh, I just want to encourage you guys in the Lord. I want to encourage you to, first of all, a little test, little test. What's the difference between positional righteousness and practical righteousness? Positional righteousness is, go ahead. Right? Your identity in Christ. You're forgiven. You're declared righteous. Amen? Practical righteousness is what? Living it out. Amen? Living out your position and being who God called you to be. Amen? You're saved by Christ's grace through faith already. You're saved right now. Amen? But as you continue in the faith... The evidence of that salvation will show up in your practical righteousness. Amen? If there's no practical righteousness in your life, 
then that points to that the idea that or the reality and that's the way it is i mean it's totally dead that shows that you really haven't become a new creation amen or as peter says you've forgotten that you were cleansed from your past sins you know and you've become dull or, or short-sighted you know as he says in blind you know so make sure you're trusting jesus amen and make sure you're right with god Praise God. Uh, love you guys very much. And it's kind of cool meeting outside. Of, the weather's not going to stay like this, guys. It's going to get uh, windy and rainy and all that. But hopefully they'll lift the band, you know. But, hey, we're going to find a way to fellowship one way or another and obey the Scripture. Amen. Which encourages us not to forsake the fellowship of ourselves together. But we're going to try to do it as legally as possible at the same time. Okay. So we can be above reproach. But we always have to obey the Lord. Amen. So I love you guys, and can we all please stand?